And good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 17. Now we have been studying the life of David in 2 Samuel. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I guess you could say. We have seen already that for the first 20 years of David's reign, as he honored the Lord and obeyed him, his life and reign were extremely blessed by God. Uh, he never lost a battle, gained more and more territory, more and more wealth. His name spread throughout the known world, what we call the Middle East today. Uh, he was renowned. And as we have also said, all of that changed when he decided to commit adultery with another man's wife. Of course, her name was Bathsheba. Her husband's name was Uriah, happened to be one of David's mighty men. Uh, but while Uriah was on the battlefield, David was home in his new palace. And um, walking on the patio one night, saw her bathing on a roof top below. And you remember the story. He took her, lay with her. She got pregnant tried to cover it by having her husband come home from the battlefield to hopefully have him go home and lay with his wife so that everyone would think it was Uriah's child. Uh, that didn't work. Uriah was a man of integrity. He wouldn't go home, sleep with his wife, with his buddies out in the trenches. So David uh, basically sends a death warrant in his hand back to Joab, the general, saying, put this guy in the, in the front of the fiercest battle at one point, pull back so that he dies. Of course, adultery and murder were capital crimes in Israel. But God, through the prophet Nathan, God sent Nathan and told David that uh, God had forgiven him. But still pronounced some fairly severe consequences upon him for his sin. We read about these in 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 to 12. The Lord told him, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son, S-U-N. Now these consequences that God spoke of began with the rebellion of Absalom, who was David's second oldest son, and brought some very dark days into David's life. We've talked about this. Uh, David had to flee the city. Uh, he was on the run. He didn't know what the future was going to bring, if God was even going to allow him to come back as king. This might be it. Not only did he have the constant heartache of his own son pursuing him and wanting to kill him, but the uncertainty of his future. In fact, he didn't know if it was going to end in his death. So these were dark days for David. As we saw in chapter 16, as David uh, was at one of the lowest points in his life, uh, the chapter records for us how that one man tried to take advantage of him through deception. That man's name was Ziba. Another cursed and kicked him when he was down. His name was Shema. We looked at that last time. But by far the most painful thing that uh, David endured during this period of time, a part, of course, from his son rebelling against him, came at the hands of one of his best friends and most trusted confidants, a man by the name of Ahithophel. Now, just to get a running start on today's message, back in chapter 16, verse 15, we read, Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him, with Absalom. So David retreats, he leaves the city, now Absalom has come, he takes over, and uh, now he is occupying Jerusalem with his guys. Verse 20, Then Absalom said to, Ahith to Ahithophel, uh, Give counsel as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. 
So they pitched the tent for Absalom on top of the house of the top of the palace. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Now, guys, as we have said, apart from killing his father, this was the worst thing Absalom could have done to him. It was the ultimate act of humiliation and degradation against his dad. You see, once he did this, there was no turning back. This was a strong signal to everybody in Jerusalem that thinks, well, maybe he'll reconcile with his dad and we're all going to be in, in big trouble for siding with Absalom. This was Absalom's way, and Ahithophel knew it. That's why he counseled him to do this. He said, if you go into your father's concubines, it will burn the bridges. There can never be a reconciliation between you and your dad ever again. And it will give a strong signal to the people that, look, we're all in this together. There's no turning back. We need to keep moving forward to establish a new kingdom under my authority, Absalom. Now, guys, with all of that as background, chapter 17 begins. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Now, we need to see this council of Ahithophel in the light of the last verse of chapter 16. Verse 23 says, Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. And so was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Look, I believe Ahithophel was a proud man. Was a proud man. I mean, his words were so respected, even revered, that all the people of Israel felt that when Ahithophel spoke, it was as if God was speaking. I mean, that had to foster pride in his heart, right? We see some of that pride coming through um, in the counsel he gave to Absalom. Take note of all the personal pronouns he uses, all right? Let me now choose. I will arise. I will come. I will strike. <laughs> I will bring back, and so on. Ahithophel was a counselor to the king, but now he sees himself in the role of a general, taking these 12,000 guys and going after David personally so that he can personally supervise David's defeat and death, the death of a man who had been once his close friend but was now his mortal enemy. I mean, not only was Ahithophel a man full of pride, he was also a man filled with bitterness and hatred toward David. You say, well, why? I mean, they were best of friends. What happened to turn Ahithophel against David to the point where he just he was just so intent on seeing him dead? Well, as we've already seen, and if you were here in prior studies, you remember, that Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. Uriah, who was married to Bathsheba, the one that David had murdered, was a really upright guy. And I'm sure Ahithophel loved uh, him. And when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, Ahithophel's granddaughter, and then had her husband murdered, well, it brought a lot of turmoil into that family and I think drove a root of bitterness into the heart of Ahithophel that's been festering all this time. And now it's coming out. Now it's coming out. I mean, he hates David with a passion for what David did to his family, how he had this good man killed to cover his sin, Ahithophel was just beside himself with bitterness and hatred towards David, and uh, he wanted him killed in the worst way, even to the point where he said, look, Absalom, give me some soldiers. I want to go and kill this guy personally. Now, 
Getting back to our text, I believe the advice of Ahithophel that he gave to Absalom was good. In fact, verse 14 tells us it was good. And probably, no doubt, would have produced the desired result to kill David, have him killed. If it were not for the counsel of another man who appears on the scene, a man by the name of Hushai. Now you remember from our study last time that Hushai was another one of David's counselors. And initially he left with David from Jerusalem. He followed David. But David said to him, look, you're not going to do me much good here in the wilderness running with me. Go back to Jerusalem and pretend to be on Absalom's side, defecting to his side, because then you can feed me intel, okay, so I know what's going on, so I can, you know, counter his plans and uh, give him counsel, Hushai, counsel that will hopefully contradict the counsel of Ahithophel and confuse the plans of Absalom. So we pick it up in verse 5. Then Absalom said, now call Hushai the archite also, because Ahithophel has just given his advice. So Absalom said, hey, let's hear what Hushai has to say about this whole deal. And uh, verse 6, and when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him, saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner, what sh shall we do as he says, if not speak up? So Hushai said to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given uh, is not good at this time. He's careful not to say the guy's a lousy counselor. Everyone reveres this guy. He's just saying, well, king, the guy's pretty, he's pretty good at what he does and the counsel he gives. But, you know, in this situation, he doesn't, he's not reading the situation properly, okay? Verse 8, Hushai said, For you know your father and his men, they are almighty men, and they are enraged in their mind like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father's a man of war. Not, he's not going to camp with the people. Surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in some other place. And it will be when some of them are overtaken at the first that whoever hears it will say there is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. What he's saying is, look, if you attack David right now, David and his guys are like they're enraged, okay, that they've been driven out of their city. And they're going to fight like wild men, okay? So, and if you take your army goes in now and David starts wiping out a bunch of your guys, word's going to get back to Jerusalem and all the people that David is rising up and is defeating you. That's going to cause everyone to begin to panic. Verse 10, even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. Therefore, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he is withdrawn into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, oh, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. Now, one commentator gives us, I think, some brilliant insight into the strategy of Hushai. He said, and I quote, Hushai wasn't in the room when Ahithophel outlined his plan. So Absalom called him in and told him what his favorite counselor had said. 
Directed by the Lord, Hushai took an entirely different approach and focused on the ego of the young king. Hushai's reply isn't a series of I will statements about himself, but rather a series of statements about the new king that couldn't help but ignite Absalom's imagination and inflate his ego. Hushai laid an effective verbal trap and Absalom fell into it, end quote. Well, the reason Absalom fell into it was because of his pride, the very pride that God was using against him to bring him down. But um, what Hushai said was, look, king, I know what uh, Ahithophel told you. He's going to get some guys, and he's going to go. He's going to fight. He's going to defeat David. Look, that's not good advice, okay? You need to gather a gigantic army, the biggest army this nation has ever seen. I mean, from Dan to Beersheba, Dan was the farthest part of Israel to the north, Beersheba the farthest part of Israel to the south. Okay, you got to gather the biggest army you can possibly muster to go against David yourself. Look, you're a new king. This is going to look great in your resume. Okay, I mean, this army you're going to muster is going to be phenomenal. And boy, nobody's going to argue with you as being a mighty king, right? Well, of course, what Hushai was trying to do was buy some time for David. He was going to take time to get guys from Dan to Beersheba together, all right? And he, he was hoping that, uh, that Absalom would take his advice because that would take time. David would have more time then to separate himself, put some distance between himself and Absalom, and, of course, uh, have time to plan a counterattack. Verse 15, Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not spend this night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now, Jonathan, Jonathan was Abiathar's son, and Ahimaz, who was Zadok's son, stayed at Enrogel, and they dared not be seen coming into the city, so a female servant would come and tell them, and they would go and tell King David. Now, you have to understand what's going on, all right? David had several spies in Jerusalem. Hushai was one, and two priests named uh, Zadok and Abiathar. They were loyal to David, but they pretended to be loyal to Absalom, okay, so that they could, you know, kind of spy on things, okay? Hushai was a counselor. I mean, he had the king's ear, okay? So he was privy to a lot of things that a lot of other people were not privy to you know, staff meetings and things where the king would uh, outline uh, strategies and, and his advisors would advise him. So Hushai, being that close to the king, would then feed intel to these two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, who would send word to their two sons who were hanging out uh, at what was called the Spring of Enrogel. Now that was a little south of the Mount of Olives and north of Bethlehem. These guys these two young guys, sons of these priests, didn't dare live in Jerusalem and come and go uh, back and forth to David and come back with, uh, you know, trying to feed him information because that would have aroused suspicion why these young guys keep coming and going from the city. So what had happened was Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, would, had a young gal, God bless her, she was a, a young woman of courage, who would take their words to the two sons who were hanging out by this spring, and then they would go and tell David to feed him the information he needed. But what Hushai wants to do is he's saying, look, tell David that here's the advice Ahithophel gave to the king. Now, I've given counter advice. I'm not sure that he looked like he was happy with it, but I'm not sure he's going to ultimately take it. He might go ahead and take the advice of Ahithophel. I don't know. 
So tell David, don't hang out in the wilderness tonight. Cross over the Jordan. Put some distance between you and Absalom in case he decides to take Ahithophel's advice, right? You're gone, and the plans of Ahithophel will be thwarted, is the idea, all right? However, best laid plans, right? There's a kid out there doing something, you know, hanging out, and he sees these two young guys going, and he sees that they're, they're going towards David. And uh, so he tells the king, tells Absalom, verse 18, uh, but both of them went away quickly, the two sons of the priests, and came to a man's house in Baharim, who had a well in his court, and they went down into it. Then the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread ground grain on it, and the thing was not known. So these guys quickly fled to the, uh, this town, Baharim, uh, found a guy who in his courtyard had a well, probably a dry well, as many of them often were at the time. Um, you know, in the certain times of the year, they would uh, dry up. And they went down in the well and hid. Well, you know, these people were loyal to David. David had a lot of people that were still loyal to him, all right? So the wife takes a covering, puts it over the opening of the well, and puts some uh, ground grain on there like she's grinding grain and making bread and so on. And uh, so the guys come from the king, verse 20, and um, said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? So the woman said to them, they have gone over the water brook. And when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. And now it came to pass, after they departed that, uh, they, these two guys, sons of the priests, came up out of the well and went and told King David and, and said to David, Arise and cross over the water, over the Jordan quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. So David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed over the Jordan by morning light. Not one of them was left who had gone over the Jordan. Now, I would like to pick up the story of what happens between David and Absalom next week. But for the rest of our time this morning, I'd like to focus in on verse 23. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went, to his, uh, went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household or his personal affairs in order and hanged himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. Now, guys, commentators are divided as to why Ahithophel committed suicide. Some believe it was because he was so proud that when Absalom and the elders of Israel took the advice of Hushai over him, now it was, it was a, kind of a humiliating thing, okay? You're the top advisor in Israel. People think that when you speak, God's talking. And verse 14 says, after Hushai gave his advice, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai is better than the advice of Ahithophel. That's a little humbling. Okay, and if you got a massive ego like a hit, I believe Ahithophel had, um, he was so humiliated, his pride was so wounded that many believe uh, he couldn't take it and ended his life over it. Others believe that he committed suicide because he realized that he had made a big mistake in following Absalom, that Absalom was not the leader that Ahithophel thought him to be. I mean, look, Ahithophel was a pretty sharp guy. He knew the counsel he had given the, uh, Absalom was sound. He knew it would... A result in David being destroyed that night. But when Absalom rejected it in favor of the advice of Hushai, and again, Ahithophel was no fool, was, no, was wise, uh, foolish in some things, wise in others, but he was smart enough to realize that, you know, Hushai was just, you know, he was speaking to the king's pride. Young king, okay, and Hushai was playing him. He was obviously pandering to, uh, to Absalom's pride. Oh, no, no, king, 
you need to go, you know, and you need to gather the biggest army. You need to show people what kind of a king you are. Pandering to Ahithophel saw through that, even though Absalom didn't. Absalom was flattered by it. And at that point, I believe, Ahithophel realized that he had hitched his star to the wrong wagon. Or hitched his wagon to the wrong star. How does that go? But whatever, okay? Um, at that point, I'm convinced it dawned on Ahithophel that Absalom was not such a wise or good leader. And in fact, I'm thinking he's thinking to himself, oh, this kid's pretty stupid, you know? I mean, we, I made a big mistake here, okay? I mean, my hatred for David was such where I just overwhelmed my, my better judgment, and I threw my lot in with this guy, and you know what? He's proving himself to be a real doofus, okay? It's obvious that Hushai's playing him and pandering to his ego, and he can't see it, and you know what? He's not going to be a good king. In fact, it's only a matter of time before David regroups and takes back the throne. So there's nothing left for me to do than to kill myself. So what do you think? Well, I think it's probably a combination of both. I do believe his pride played a big part in his demise. Um, pride rooted in his massive ego that you know couldn't help or handle being dissed <laughs> when his counsel was rejected in favor of Hushai's, to use a football metaphor. Kind of like uh, Bill Belichick pulling Tom Brady out of the Super Bowl game and replacing him with a high school quarterback. Not that Ahithophel knew anything about Tom Brady, of course, but he's the top guy, all right? He's the top guy, and who's shy? Absalom has taken his advice over mine. I think that that, in his mind, was the ultimate humiliation. Now, we know that from Proverbs 16, verse 18, the Bible warns us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty look before a fall. And so I do think that his pride played a part in his committing suicide, his death, okay? But I really believe it was his bitterness and hatred of David that caused Ahithophel, as I said earlier, to throw his lot in with Absalom in the first place. Guys, hatred and bitterness can poison us from within, it can warp our thinking, skew our perception of reality, and ultimately cause us to make bad decisions, sometimes very bad decisions that can hurt us or even destroy us, not to mention those around us in the process. Just look at what we see going on every day in the news. Look at what we see going on every day in the news. I mean, the hatred and bitterness we're seeing every day in our country directed at President Trump is absolutely amazing to me. It's absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, we see these people who are acting like violent, lunatic thugs, they've, like they've lost their minds. Now, I realize that some of them are paid agitators. There are powerful people in this country who are working towards a globalist agenda, and Trump is a nationalist. Obama was right there with him, moving us more and more towards a global uh, society. The Antichrist is, of course, going to take over that and bring it to fruition. But there are people that were very unhappy when Donald Trump won because he's not a globalist, he's a, he's a nationalist. He's, he wants strong borders, he wants a strong national identity, and so on. And so they're doing everything they can to bring him down. Pray for him. There are those who want to bring him down literally with a bullet. Pray for our president and vice president. But I, I look at these people and I'm like, I just, they're not all paid agitators. Some of them really believe in what they're doing. They really believe that uh, their cause is righteous. Trump is evil. Anybody who supports him is evil. As somebody has said, 
the right thinks the left is wrong, the left thinks the right is evil. And if you think a group of people are evil, then by getting rid of them, you're acting in the best interests of everyone else. I just saw not long ago a group of these uh, thugs. I mean, these, again, these people are acting like lunatics, destroying property, burning uh, cars, and injuring people. I just saw a group of these thugs in Seattle a few days ago uh, who beat a group of uh, Trump supporters unconscious. Small group of Trump supporters surrounded by a, a, a very large group of anti-Trump supporters. Maybe these Trump supporters were in Make America Great Hat. They were, somehow they identified them as Trump supporters. Circled them, jumped on them, beat them unconscious for just being Trump supporters. This was in the news yesterday. And I've seen stuff like this over the country. Uh, but this was in the news yesterday. I quote, Rutherford County Schools uh, said a substitute teacher will no longer be working in the school district after he was accused of, of posting inappropriate, threatening comments on social media regarding President Donald Trump and his followers. Rutherford County Schools received several messages about David Collin on Wednesday. Collin is accused of posting on Facebook Here's what he posted, the only good Trump supporter is a dead Trump supporter, end quote. Another publication called Campus Reform posted this article just a few days ago. They said on this past Monday, a far-left group called Knights, Knights for Socialism held a bash the fash gathering. Fascist and fascist. Got a bash, beat up the fascists, all right? So they, this was a, a bash the fash workshop to teach, listen, students at the University of Central Florida how to beat up Republicans physically. The so-called leftist fight club was open to everyone except Republicans. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. You know, I mean, uh, I don't think since the Civil War our country's been this divided, not even in the 60s. But it's not just these anti-Trump supporters. There are many other groups, groups like uh, Black Lives Matter, who have so inflamed hatred in the hearts of many black Americans toward the police that they have taken, uh, some have taken it upon themselves to, uh, to gun down cops. Why? Well, because they are convinced that the police are targeting, mostly white police, are targeting young black men, targeting them to kill them, when none of the stats show that. I've seen the DOJ reports, okay? The stats do not bear that out. You know who... Black men are, young black men are dying in this country, a lot of them in Chicago, at the hands of other young black men, usually gangs fighting over drug turf. It is definitely not white cops targeting young black men for no reason. Those are the facts. But you know what? When you're filled with hatred and bitterness, facts don't matter. You know, Hebrews 12, 15 warns us that a root of bitterness can cause much trouble and defile or poison many people. Can I just say this to you guys? In this environment of hatred and violence, it's easy to want to take sides. It's easy to get swept up in all of the hate and want to retaliate in some way, even if it's just rooting on others who are fighting against these people and so on. You know what? Can I encourage you guys not to go that route? Because the Bible tells us, in fact, it commands us in Romans chapter 12, repay no one evil for evil, and do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are children of our Father in heaven. This is not the way he wants us to behave. He wants us to pray. He wants us to stand up for our rights for our country, but he doesn't want us to grab a baseball bat and take matters into our own hands and break a few skulls, you know? 
because they're fighting with our people. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, the Bible says. We're fighting against principalities and powers, the forces of wickedness in the spirit realm. And Paul told Timothy, a young pastor, he said, look, don't get caught up in all this stuff. He said, a servant of God must be patient, humble, able to teach in humility, correcting those in opposition, lest God perhaps will grant them repentance and they will escape the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do as well. Let me shift gears. Because as I was studying for this message, uh, I came across uh, a sermon that the great Charles Spurgeon preached at the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, July 5th, 1906. He delivered this message. And uh, it, came, it came out of this verse, verse 23, 2 Samuel 17, 23. And let me read it to you again, this time out of the NLT. When Ahithophel realized that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey, went to his hometown, set his affairs in order, and hanged himself. He died there and was buried in the family tomb. In his sermon, Spurgeon acknowledged that a wise guy like Ahithophel did a very foolish thing by taking his own life. He began that message with the words, His case teaches us that the greatest worldly wisdom will not preserve a man from the utmost folly, end quote. But he said what really stood out for him, in the what really jumped off the page, Spurgeon said when I read it, were the words, he put his house in order and hanged himself. Spurgeon said, and I quote, to put his house in order showed that he was a prudent man. To hang himself proved that he was a fool. Heron is a strange mixture of discretion and desperation, mind and madness. Shall a man have wisdom enough to arrange his worldly affairs with care? And yet shall he be so sapless as to take his own life afterwards? That he should care for his house who cared not for either his body or soul? Strange incongruity. He makes his will, and then because he cannot have his will, he wills to die. Tis another proof that madness is in the heart of the sons of men, end quote. Well, he's talking about unbelievers there. He went on to say, Spurgeon did, how that thousands, well maybe in his day it was thousands, today it's millions, Take the time to set the affairs of this life in order, but completely neglect making any preparation for the life to come. They pour untold time and energy into building their businesses and making money, laying up for themselves treasures on the earth, but have laid up nothing in heaven for eternity, and that's even if they've received Christ at all. He said it's as if they spend their lives gathering broken seashells with great care and prudence, but they throw away priceless diamonds along the way. And he's, of course, talking about the treasures that could be waiting for them in heaven if they were as industrious in the work of God as they are in the work of man on the earth. He went on to indict the world of unbelievers with the words, and I quote, You have been engaged for years in farming. You have plowed and sown and reaped and gathered into the barn, and no one has done the work better than you. And yet... Though you have been so careful in your labor, you have never sown to the Spirit, nor cared to reap life everlasting. You have never asked to have your heart plowed with the gospel plow, nor sown with the living seed. And the consequence will be that at the last, or in the end, you will have no harvest but weeds and thistles, and you will be given over to eternal destruction." Unquote. Now, I believe when Spurgeon spoke these words, he had the words of the Lord Jesus in mind out of Luke 12. Why don't you turn there? Of course, you've all read this passage. Every once in a while, we'll revisit it. It's important. 
Luke 12, starting with verse 15. Jesus is talking to a group of people. He said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? Never done on this guy. Maybe I should give some to the poor. Okay. No, no, I've just got so many crops now. I've had a great harvest. My barns are not big enough to hold it. What am I going to do? Verse 18 says, Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll pull down my barn, build bigger, and there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now listen, guys. The Lord Jesus Christ was always trying to shift the emphasis of people away from the material slash temporal to get their focus on the spiritual slash eternal. I mean, he would meet people on the physical, find common ground with something they needed, like they're hungry one day. People come to him, right? They were very hungry. They'd eaten all day. And he feeds them with, he meets their need, takes a small amount of bread and fish and multiplies into a great feast, right? But then he goes on to teach them that their greatest need, the greatest hunger they have is for spiritual bread, okay? It's not for physical food. It's for the spiritual food that only he could give to them, which will result in eternal life. So he met people on their level and then used, used to elevate their thinking to the level of the spirit. But the Lord began this parable with a warning against coveting. Coveting means lusting or strongly desiring things. In this context, it would be strongly desiring the things of earth, material things. And Jesus said, let me paraphrase, take heed of all the lusting and desiring that you have going on, for your life does not consist. It's not gonna, you're not going to find happiness and fulfillment by all the things you acquire in this life. And your life does not consist in the abundance of the things you possess. Now, of course, Jesus' words were directed primarily at unbelievers, but uh, those of us who are Christians can and should take the Lord's words to heart also. You know, there are many professing Christians who are diligently pursuing earthly treasures, materialism, but are not putting any time into their walk with or service for the Lord. I'm sure many of them have their financial houses in order. I mean, they have planned for retirement and have a nice nest egg waiting for them, but they are killing their souls from neglect, is the idea. I mean, it's very interesting to me to see how the man in this parable viewed himself and then to see how God viewed him. I mean, verse 19 shows what he thought about himself, okay, how he viewed himself, being on easy street with not a care in the world. He felt he could retire and live for many years on the fortune he had amassed. And his philosophy of life was going to be, take it easy, you know, eat, drink, be merry, you've got it made, all right? You can retire early, you don't have to work another day in your life, you can just enjoy life, you know, and so on. Now that's how he viewed his life, purely looking at life from the perspective of earth and the temporal, but that's not how God viewed his life nor any of our lives. See, God always views us from the perspective of heaven, the eternal. Okay, that's why God will put us through difficult circumstances on earth. He's more concerned not with our earthly comforts, 
but with our eternal best. So he will put us through trials and things on the earth to grow us, make us more Christ-like, purify our faith, that we can be used in greater ways for his glory, which will bring to us greater treasures in heaven. He's always concerned more about the, the eternal than the temporal. We, on the other hand, get locked into the temporal, because this is where we live, right? Solomon got locked into the temple, a man of God, but lost his way for many years, thinking that happiness and fulfillment were found in this life. So he pursued one thing after another. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. He pursued one thing after another, but everything he pursued that he thought was going to bring him happiness and fulfillment, he ends with the words, but it was all emptiness and vanity. The conclusion he comes to, everything under the sun is emptiness and vanity. Well, that's right. Everything under the sun, when you're looking at life only from Earth's perspective, under the sun, it doesn't make any sense. The, the only thing you come up with is a very hedonistic philosophy of life. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Grab for all the gusto you can. Life is all about having fun and, and pleasure and amassing a lot of material things. The one with the most toys wins. But see, that, that leads to a very shallow life. If you rise above it, and begin to look at life from God's vantage point, from the vantage point of eternity, it makes sense. This is not an end in itself. It's a launching point to eternity. And what we do now and how we live now will determine where we're going to spend eternity, either in heaven with the Lord or in hell. So God saw his life a lot differently than he saw his life. A lot of that going around. A lot of people who see their life a lot differently than God sees it. They're on top of the world top of their field, making a lot of money, have a lot of nice things, houses, cars, and material possessions. They think they're on easy street. God says, you are so miserably poor, eternally speaking. And God said to this guy, who thought he was just doing great, he said to him, verse 20, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and then whose will those things be which you have provided? In other words, tonight you're going to die. And then who's going to get all the things you worked so hard over the course of your life to acquire? It's also interesting to me. This, this is important. It's also interesting to me that this man never got the chance to build bigger barns, did he? To hold all of his abundance. He never got the chance to enjoy his retirement. I mean, he only thought to do these things in the parable, right? He only That was his plan, <laughs> Uh, for the future, a future he never lived to see, though. God calls him a fool because he made all these plans for the future, his future life on earth, not realizing that his time on earth was just about up. You fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. None of us knows how much time we have on the earth. Tomorrow's not promised to anybody, the Bible says. Therefore, it's very wise if we make plans for eternity right now while we still have breath within us. Because once you die, you can't say, well, Lord, I reconsidered. Okay, I, I want to be a Christian. Too late. <laughs> Today is the day of salvation, right? So this guy, God says, you're a fool. You have spent all your life gathering possessions and things and wealth for the future. A future you're never going to see. You're, you're going to die tonight. And you are totally unprepared for the life to come. Jesus then gives the moral of the story in verse 21. He says, so is he who lays up treasure for himself, the idea is on earth, and is not rich toward God. Jesus is saying, listen, as we bring this to a close, that everyone is a fool who uses their life on this earth to make money and lay up for themselves all kinds of material things on earth, 
but is spiritually bankrupt toward God and will spend eternity in hell. I mean, how utterly foolish is that? To plan for retirement, but not for eternity. And that's why, guys, this man, and listen, everyone like him are called fools who follow his example. They're fools because they live their lives as though, listen, this life is all there is, and self is all that matters, and there is nothing beyond death. I want you to notice, though, the Lord didn't call this man evil for working hard and gaining wealth. There is nothing evil about hard work and enjoying the fruits of your labor. The Lord called him a fool because he only stored up for himself treasures on the earth, but laid nothing up in heaven for eternity. Yeah, I really think Spurgeon was onto something here. Ahithophel, think about this, had everything in life that mattered. I mean, he was he had earthly, worldly wisdom, okay? He was in the top of his field. I mean, he had prestige. He had success. I mean, he was the king's number one counselor. That's a pretty high position in that administration, right? Ahithophel had everything in life that seemed to matter, but he, listen, played the fool. What do you mean? Well, I don't know his personal spiritual state. I have to believe that either he was severely backslidden or didn't know the Lord at all. Because, listen, a spirit-filled man would never have taken his life. And he would have forgiven David because we're all sinners and we all do things that we are not right and we need each other to forgive. We, we all have to forgive each other, right? A spirit-filled person would say, David, what you did was terrible. It was reprehensible. Well, you know what? I'm not going to judge you because God is the judge. And if he's forgiven you, who am I to hold something against you? So I forgive you. I personally believe, even though Ahithophel had all this going for him, again, he was a success, top of his field. But when it came to the most important things in life, God, he played the fool. Guys, it's possible to be a wise fool, the title of this message. Definitely not something you want written on your tombstone. Here lies a wise fool. He was wise in the things of men, but he was foolish in the things of God. I, I th always think of King Saul, who had the opportunity, first king of Israel, had the opportunity to become the, one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. But he was a man who couldn't obey God. He just refused to obey God, to walk in God's ways, always trying to do his own thing. Uh, God told him to do things, and he would always have a better way to do it, contradict God, and so on. There's a lot of people like that. They know better than God what's best for their lives. So they make choices and things, and it brings a lot of negative consequences in their lives. But Saul, out of his own mouth, now these are the words I think were written on his tombstone, comes to the end of his life, here's how he sums up his own life. I have erred exceedingly and played the fool. I have erred exceedingly and played the fool. Because any man or woman is a fool who doesn't give God first place in their life, who doesn't honor God with their life. Look, and really we're done. This is the third time I've said that. We're done, though. Right? <laughs> yeah, I think it was a combination of his pride and his bitterness and hatred that brought Ahithophel down, that, that caused him to commit suicide. Those two, those things won't necessarily kill you physically, but they will kill your marriage. They will kill your ministry. They will kill your walk. They'll rob you of everything God wants to do in your life. He was rich in the things of men, but he was a pauper in the things of God. Look, we've talked about 
you making choices that will allow you to lay up treasures in heaven. There's a lot of people who are waiting for the pastor to tell them what to do for God. That's not my job. Your job is to pray and see what God lays on your heart. What burden he gives you? Well, I don't know what burden I have right now. I don't really have a burden for much. Well, then look around and find out where a need is. Plug in. And I guarantee you, God will somehow use just your faithfulness and the little things to direct you into other things for his glory. But we need to be serving God. All right? We need to be using our time on this earth wisely. Again, Ahithophel was a wise fool. Many are like him. And may God give us the grace that we don't follow in his footsteps, right? That it can't be said of us, oh, here, here lies a wise fool. I want my tombstone to read, and don't get any ideas. I want to be around for a while. <laughs> I want my tombstone to read, here lies a wise man. He lived his life for God and now has no regrets. He's wise. So is any man or woman who is rich toward God in this life. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for holding up Ahithophel as an example of how we shouldn't live. I mean, Lord, many people in your word are held up as examples how to live because they loved you and were obedient and honored you. But there are a few, and here's one example of somebody in Scripture that you are holding up with a big circle around them and a line through it going, don't live like this guy. Learn from his mistakes. Sure, he was wise. Sure, he was successful. But he was a fool in the things of God. We don't want to be that way. We want to be wise in the things of God, that we might walk in the word of God and obey everything you have said. And so, Lord, and give us grace, Lord, to forgive those who have hurt us. We, we need to let go, because that root of bitterness will just choke us, poison us. It, it will create so much hatred and bitterness within us that everything will be distorted. Our perception of reality will be skewed. And we will go out, not of that hatred and bitterness, make decisions that are going to be hurtful. And uh, we just don't want to do that, Lord. Give us grace. Father, thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.